Hey, Adam. Yes, Mike. How do you think Vince McMahon returning will affect Triple H's hopes to expand in Japan? I hope it negatively impacts them, Mike. (laughs) I have had to talk about that story and write about that story for what feels like 24 straight hours. I was going to say 24 straight years, it must feel like. It probably has been literally about 24 straight hours of you working on that between Wrestling Observer Live, the wrestling news, whatever other things you've got going on that I'm not privy to. It's It's been a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, a lot of people, uh, not a lot, okay, a couple of people hit me off in DMs and on Twitter and such to say, hey. Was it Stephanie or Triple H? <laughs> neither, neither one of them. They had no interest in hearing what we thought about Wrestle Kingdom, but there were people that were wondering, hey, when is the post dome show show going to take place? And uh dome show show yeah. So yeah, it's taking place right now and we are not going to talk about Vince McMahon and the Evil Empire and any other wacky shenanigans that are taking place in the state of Florida and or Connecticut. We are going to talk about just the wacky shenanigans that are taking place in New Japan Pro Wrestling today because even though there have been some other things like, you know, the because I think we left off, we lasted a show on the 2nd, I believe. So we did not, any of the news that, that happened or any of the shows that happened overnight on the 3rd, you know, I... There was a little bit, but all of the news really has been about New Japan and, by extension, Pro Wrestling Noah, which has kept itself in second place firmly when it comes to the, well, I guess maybe after stardom, but I would say actually second place firmly right now when it comes to the other news that is big in Japan at the moment. Yeah, I think coming off the heels of the uh, the big show at Budokan with Shinsuke Nakamura against Keiji Muto, or excuse me, the Great Muta, um, and then the the announcement just, uh, I guess, yesterday as we're recording this, of the full card for Wrestle Kingdom 17 in Yokohama Arena, which is, once again, New Japan versus Pro Wrestling Noah. They are definitely uh, very much in the news. Uh, we could quickly, though, Mike, draw a parallel uh, between what you've been reporting on with the whole WWE Vince McMahon situation uh, by saying that whether it be a guy that was on Wrestle Kingdom in Carl Anderson or a guy that wasn't on Wrestle Kingdom that maybe we would have expected him to be uh, as of about a month or so uh, a month or so ago Jonah it will be very interesting to see all these guys and women that came back to WWE in the immediate wake of Vince McMahon being gone and Triple H being in power in terms of creative and and, and talents and whatever else uh, you know Will any of these guys be gone relatively quickly again from that company? Because, uh, as I'm sure you are uh, more aware of than even I, I find it very hard to believe that Vince McMahon is going to stay completely hands-off on the product uh, and the roster and all those things. So, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe <laughs> Regal should uh, should have kept his options a little bit more open as well. Look here, pal. I'm here to maximize value for shareholders, okay? 
I don't know why. See, my Vince McMahon is very close to Carter Pewterschmidt on American Dad, and I got to be honest, they're very close to being the same people as well, too. In fact, Vince McMahon is somewhere between that cartoon character and the cartoon character that is Donald Trump. But, but, but see, pal, I'm just here to do that and to, to, to be part of a sale. If there's a sale, I'm not going to be involved in creative. I, I would never do something like that. I would he's, never he's, replace <laughs> a bunch of board members and change bylaws so I could get back power. I wouldn't do it. He's a real team player. He's what I think Vince McMahon, I think behind the scenes, no drama, get go along to get along sort of guy. So I'm sure I'm sure all those people that ran straight back to that company are safe. Um, Don't you remember the big hug with Jim Helwig? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all good. So, um. in, in any event, we'll move on from that, because I'm sure your brain is completely fried from having to talk and think about that whole story. Uh, but there is, you know, there is a little bit of a uh, uh, a Japan connection. I'll also say that, boy, did Shinsuke Nakamura get that going to pro wrestling, you know what, a wrestle great Muda thing in under the wire. I'm really glad that that <laughs> match is not scheduled for like a week later or a month later. Because uh, who knows if it would have happened, but we uh, we got that moment. Yes, we did, and we we ended up getting a good dome show. You know, if you thought that the great Muda escaped quickly after losing to Shinsuke and Nakamura, you ain't seen nothing like the reaction you got out of Great Muda at the Tokyo Dome. But uh, I don't know if you want to take this from main event backwards, or if you want to start. With uh, Oleg Bolton and the the rest of the pre-show, but whichever direction you want to go, I'm for. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's I, I just to reference what you uh, what you said with Muto bowing after the uh, after after the six man tag. It was funny that even uh, Kevin Kelly and Chris Charlton kind of jokingly pointed that out as well. Like you know, Muto, was, you know, like you need to catch a cab. Even Ta- it was Tanahashi's like trying to slow him down, and Muto's just like, nope, gotta go. <laughs> Uh, it, it is funny how post-match he moves three times as fast going to the back as he does uh, going to the ring or during the match itself. You know, I can understand that as somebody that, you know, when you're at work and you just don't want to be there and you're only there for the paycheck, you're only there because you have to be there and, and like you're just dragging, but then the, the, t- the clock gets close and as soon as you punch out, you can hit that exit door and make it to your car faster than I don't know what. So I, you know, wrestlers and, you know, the fighters, they heal faster than normal men. I think Keiji Muto is just taking this point in, of his career as uh, just give me my paycheck and I'm going to go because, you know, there's a greater story. I think we can tell probably about Muta even being on this show <laughs> and the fact that it came up when it did and as late as it did and, and all that other stuff. You know, it's uh, you know, it's interesting here the dynamic between New Japan and Noah right now, and and where Muda actually you know is sitting in it and during his retirement run. Yeah, it's it, it, the dynamic, and we'll get to it for sure with when we talk about that second Wrestle Kingdom seventeen show coming up in Yokohama Arena. It is really, it is fascinating that they are working together and doing this show together at a time where. The competition between the two groups seems to be stronger than ever, even though you know, New Japan is the clear number one. You know, Noah seems to be taking aim at that 
uh, more than we've seen in the past. But you know what? I, I will... I'm sorry. I just want to jump okay. in here because remember way back when Noah just had its foot on New Japan's neck, you know, 20 years ago in 2000 and. To, and the same thing with All Japan, and then ultimately they were working together. You know, the groups ended up working together, and it's like, you know, at the time, with what was taking place in America, and seeing ECW die, and the Indies had all died, and WCW dies, and it's like, I can't believe that these other companies are keeping these other companies alive, but in the grand scheme of things... Strong companies help other strong companies. And, you know, could one company do more with it after the fact once they help build, you know, somebody else up? And, you know, there's banter back and forth and you work with each other back and forth. Yes. You know, that can absolutely happen. And look, the last time these two groups worked together, you know what I'm saying? Before last year. So, you know, it's just, it's always interesting to me that. The difference between there and here where it comes to needing competition and there being this, you know, I I don't know what it is. You know, again, nobody is crushed or stomped out completely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, whether it be uh, all Japan uh, post split 20 years ago where New Japan really could have just, you know, put the final nail in the coffin, but instead of worked with them and. You know, that that kind of, uh, if not kept them afloat, kept them, you know, in the public consciousness a little bit more than they would have been. And then, you know, Noah a few years later with with New Japan and you fast forward to now, what I find most interesting about it is that was a time where like the companies were the companies. Now we're at a time where both New Japan and Pro Wrestling Noah are owned by our subsidiaries of major, major corporations in Japan. And yet still that same well, we're going to work together uh, thing, you know, is happening. It's very interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily expected that in this more corporate era of, of pro wrestling in Japan, but uh, definitely a a difference between what you see uh, on that continent versus over here. Um, but yeah, I'd say as far as the dome, let's, let's take it from the top because there's some stuff we can get through pretty quickly. Um, but, I, you know, I think that, that will, like the show did, that will build toward uh, the double main events uh, pretty well. The opener uh, exhibition match, again, this pre-show started an hour 40 minutes before the main show. Uh, so there were definitely some people complaining, like, I got up so early and it was for this. Well, buyer or subscriber beware, I would say. Uh, but the opener three-minute exhibition, Ryohei Oiwa against the debuting Bolton Oleg. Uh, or as he was previously referred to, uh, Oleg Bolton. Three minutes, time limit draw. It was just a three-minute exhibition. I thought Oleg, for the amount of time they had here, I thought he looked great. He looked like a monster. He looked exactly like you would expect a guy uh, with his size and amateur wrestling pedigree to look in his first pro wrestling match. And I want more. I wish this was a five-minute match or a ten-minute match because he certainly looked like he could hang. First things first, for me, I don't know what it is recently, especially when trying to read things on the wrestling news. You get hung up on something, and there's something about Ryohei Oiwa. I I don't know what it is recently, but it's like Chuck Nabla trying to throw to, you know, 
first base and missing by like 5,000 feet. <laughs> like that's, that's me right now with Oiwa. And I'm, I tell you what, I am not calling him Bolton Oleg. I know that that's the proper Japanese way to do it, but he's Oleg Bolton, Kazakhstani born wrestler, former Bushi Road amateur. And I loved him. I loved this match for what it was. It was perfect. I'm, I, I thought it could go to a draw and it ended up doing so. And I thought that was the right decision. You know, he's not, he's not Kitamiya, but he's going to get an advanced push and he might as well at his age, looking the way that he does being a throwback to the old new Japan foreign, you know, Russian slash amateur, it, you know, to me, it was a, it's a perfect thing. And the fact that again, it's so simple it's special there right now, even with all the other young lions and the way things go, you know, he still stood out. So I am interested, obviously, to see what his progress is going to be, because I think it is going to be accelerated. Yeah, and I think we'll it, that may be part of a larger thing of accelerated development, accelerated pushes for younger wrestlers, which we'll definitely get into. when We talk about New Year Dash as well, but. You know, your point about him sort of being a throwback to a, an earlier time of New Japan, it, to me, it's part of a larger story of the last few classes of Young Lions, the type of guys that are coming through and going through the system and graduating. It's almost, and we'll see, but it's almost going to force a bit of a change from what we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years of New Japan, just because they have... So many guys that have such a high level background, whether it be in amateur wrestling or, or combat sports or uh, legitimate sports that almost just by the nature of the type of wrestlers that they're producing, there's going to have to be a more serious style because there are going to be so many more serious background wrestlers there. So I don't know. It's just something to put a pin in. We talked about it. Uh, last year, which, hey, that could have been a week ago, but uh, you know, deep uh, back into last year, and maybe it's something we'll, you know, we'll, we'll have to talk about more as time goes on. Something that was not overly serious, however, the New Japan Rambo, which I, I talked about this on Twitter, at Adam of the Ban, and every year, Mike, people come into this Rambo, and they somehow, and I don't know why, have an expectation that this is going to be like a Royal Rumble level, you know, timed entrance battle royal. Every year, people forget that the Rambo sucks. It's supposed to suck. It does exactly that. And it's over. And yet people get frustrated and they say, oh, my God, why did I stay up late slash get up early for this? This was terrible. Yes, it was. And it's on you if you've watched New Japan before, if you've watched the Tokyo Dome before, and you expected this to be something else. It is not their fault. This is just what it is. Now, when you said it's over, like, do you mean like any hopes and dreams are over, or that you mean the match is over with the people in the crowd and it's everybody out there to see it? It has been completed. It's, uh, it has occurred. <laughs> I hate it. And the reason people think that is because it was like that at its very beginning, but they have turned it into what it is, and they are insistent upon keeping this King of Pro Wrestling provisional title. And I understand some people saying, well, it gives you a reason to do a goofy match. 
Like, <laughs> I... <laughs> Even if it, even if it happens to be entertaining with two people that I like, I don't care. I don't like this title. I think it's superfluous. I think you can build and actually attach stipulations to matches by having feuds and just having that as opposed to essentially your version of the 24-7 title with better workers and no buys for me and this whole match is always no buys. Yeah, I mean, I... I don't necessarily. I agree with almost everything you said. I don't necessarily think like there was a time where the Rambo was great and it's fallen upon hard times. I think the only difference really between these and the early ones but is you, you had the a old few man other- surprise. Yes, you had the wacky surprises, but the match still sucked. I mean, it was it, it, it was just some. It's just something to get guys on the undercard of the Tokyo Dome, so people aren't saying, "Oh, why wasn't this guy on the show?" You can say, "Well, they were in the Rambo." Um, in the end, it comes down to show great Okan Toru Yano and the 2022 KOPW Shingo Takagi. They are the final four in this Rambo that went 30 minutes and 37 seconds. Uh, and they go on to new year dash to compete for the provisional KOPW 2023 belt, no longer a trophy. Uh, and I do agree with you, Mike, that particularly now that we have the TV title, and now that the never open weight title seemingly is back in the fold, um, you know, it's tough to find a whole lot of differentiation other than, I guess, the KOPW is the wacky stips belt. The TV title is the 15 minute time limit belt. And the never open weight title, maybe that's going to become the, the hard hitting dudes belt again. I don't know. I, I, one of those three needs to go away. Um, but it, it's not going to happen. We are, it is very clear. All these belts are here to stay. This is the way such things go. And unfortunately they don't have a golden wrestler belt, a, you know, I I don't want to call it, you know, the, the old timers day belt or anything like that. The O 50, the O 50, or you know what they could call it? They could just call it the GHC Tag Team Titles. Well, <laughs> but here's the thing. You can't call it the O fifty because, I mean, my God, look at Mochizuki. Look at Sugiera. Look at these guys who were over 50. We've got to push it to over 60. And even if we do, I am impressed with Tatsumi Fujinami, who I know Dave bagged on for for losing a step the man wrestled 12 matches at 69 years old in 2022 and i don't care how slow he was he still looks incredibly impressive for his age he's still able to do amazing things and i thought this as with the aesthetic of tiger mask and with fujinami and all of that i thought this was a nice tribute to 50 years of new japan using guys who really aren't used all that much in new japan anymore yeah it was yuji nagata satoshi kojima and togi makabe against Tatsumi fujinami minoru suzuki and tiger mask Uh, fujinami he certainly has lost most if not all of his physical dexterity but just from a uh, a look standpoint it is insane that this guy is in that good of shape. It looks as much like Tetsumi Fujinami still as he does nearing 70 years old. And for any bagging on how he looked in this match, 
he looked like uh, Will Ospreay or Kenny Omega compared to that finishing sequence between Togi Makabe and Tiger Mask. <laughs> My God. It, it, was, it was so bad that it was good, though, because by the end, it was just two old guys that just gave up and just said, we're, we're done. We're not going to try to salvage this. Basically, the ref had to figure out why and how to count three, and the referee did that, and the match was over. Um, it was fine. It was good symbolism having the, these six guys out there. Like you said, Tiger Mask wearing uh, you know, a, a costume gear that harkened back to the original Tiger Mask. Uh, seeing Minoru Suzuki go and go hard in this match was uh, was fun. He had had an interesting week. He had just had two nights in a row at Cork and Hall. For All Japan, teaming with Nuruki Doi and seemingly starting a new group in All Japan with Hokuto Omori. And then here, uh, he's with uh, with Fujinami and Tiger Mask. Uh, Makabe gets the pin of sorts on Tiger Mask to, uh, to end that one. <laughs> and then, and you know, honestly, like, there was a delay between the Rambo in this match, and then there was another delay before this and the actual introduction of the, uh, of the show, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. But it started, which, before the show, before we get to the first match, the opening video that was played with the tribute to Inoki in it, which morphed into some of the top wrestlers of today in New Japan, which then led into the announcer giving the lineup and the pictures up on the screen and the announcement of every match that would be taking place to the theme of Antonio Inoki, at least up until you got to the Osprey and Omega match, was so awesome. And then, you know, from there they had a special one, you know, just for Osprey and Omega and Okada and Jay White. But I thought that was phenomenal. And then I thought that aesthetic that they used in the video, that was obviously what was laid out throughout the building on those big screens inside the Tokyo Dome. And I thought from a, a looks point of view, you know, attendance aside in, a, in an arena that big, I thought looks wise, I thought it was really, really impressive looking. looking. Yeah, no, I, I would agree in it. You know, there's the, the the new additional screens in the Tokyo Dome, which certainly help. Uh, the set was very good. And attendance-wise, like you said, 26,085 fans. By far the biggest attendance of the pandemic era in Japan for a show. Uh, the biggest attendance in several years for uh, for Russell Kingdom. You know, bigger than the combined attendance for two days for the last couple, each of the last couple of years. And I think... Uh, they're back right now to like the 2016-2017 level crowds for the Tokyo Dome. And more than anything else, like that was great having that many people there. I mean, there were certain sections that were, you know, lit up and you could see with fans that, you know, had not been in previous years. But having crowd noise, having cheering, as hesitant as they were early on uh, on the show, having cheering made all the difference in the world atmosphere-wise. Like we've talked about before. On some of the smaller shows, if you have an enthusiastic clap-only crowd at Cork and Hall, for example, it can still have a little bit of atmosphere. It certainly isn't like when you have cheering crowds, but it's not overly depressing. But these last few Wrestle Kingdoms where there's 12,000 or 10,000 or 5,000 people in the crowd and it's a 65,000-seat arena or stadium and there's no cheering, it is just – it's it's weird – it's it's almost dystopian uh, in terms of the feel. It's it's not only is it lacking atmosphere, it's almost 
off-putting and disconcerting the lack of atmosphere considering what's happening in the ring. So that was was notable, even in the Rambo, even in the uh, Memorial match, as we headed into uh, the proper opener, this felt like a Wrestle Kingdom, like a Tokyo Dome show again for the first time in uh, what feels like decades, even though it was only three years. Will Ospreay doesn't even know why you'd want to go out there and watch Clap Wrestling. <laughs> yes, you and Will Ospreay definitely on the same page with that. <laughs> I feel like he consulted with you before that promo, um, which we should mention before we start talking about this show. If for some reason somehow you have not watched Wrestle Kingdom, go back and watch the press conference, the pre-Wrestle Kingdom press conference, particularly the Omega Osprey promos, because they were both incredible. Uh, Don Callis was so good cutting that promo for Kenny Omega, and then the Will Osprey promo after the microphone goes out and he gets up in Kenny Omega's face. Just masterful stuff. And in the presentation of a press conference, it works so well. It's so different from anything you would ever see uh, in American pro wrestling, and they knocked it out of the park. You know, just I think made everyone, including both of us, uh, even more excited for that match heading into this show than we would have otherwise been. Yeah, and, and the the story was easy to pick up, even if you don't know what was going on, because Omega is so slimy, he's so cocky, he's so arrogant. He comes back in. He's talked about leaving the whole thing to Osprey, and now he's coming back with Don Callis, and they're looking at what was left. And my God, remember Don Callis? You know, he's the one who's been the mastermind putting all this stuff together for Kenny Omega. And now we're back looking at this dump that you left. And Will, you're supposed to be this big star. And you got your your big group now. And you're such a big man, but you're not me. And he just needled him and needled him. And Osprey, you know, I don't know if he was supposed to go off. Or maybe the, he was supposed to talk a little bit and and then, you know, get up in his face. But when that mic went out and he just went at Omega, it was kind of perfect because he immediately blew up. He immediately aired all of his grievances. And Omega's just kind of sitting there, like, smiling. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, it's tough life you got there. You know, you want to be a star? You know, you don't know what's, no, 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 what it's like to be me. I built the thing here, and then I left and I built it in America. So the whole, that story which runs, you know, a little separate from the New Japan universe of Will Ospreay being Big Billy Badass, and I've got my group, and I'm having these kick-ass matches, and, you know, I'm beating Shingo, and I can beat this person and do this and do that, and I just need to get my shot at the IWGP title. You know, it's the perfect, there's just enough disconnect there where the whole thing works out very, very nicely. And this guy who's so abhorrent, you know, in, in New Japan, usually, you know, is now coming back in when the superstars back in and it breaks away from that a little bit. And now it's almost like now he's the, the big underdog. Yeah. And it, it runs parallel. It's it, it's not exactly the same, but it runs parallel to the story of Osprey not being able to get by Okada either. You know, we've got Will Osprey, who's this generational talent wrestler of the year yet again. And yet. He has not been able to get past the two guys that are the symbols of what brought New Japan to you know their, their highest modern peak, that being Omega and Okada. Uh, in their own ways, they've been walls for Osprey to get past. Um, and yeah, just just great stuff. Super. Like, and the it's one guy of... he could beat with Ibushi is the one that you know he ends up spitting right back up in Omega's face, and Omega yes. calls back to so. You know, again, I, I that was the whole thing was crafted really nice. Well, and it was it's your point earlier. It's the type of thing that works if you're 
hyper-focus on the New Japan product and are, are plugged into every single storyline, or it works just as well if you are, you know, sort of more of a, a casual watcher of New Japan or maybe you've drifted over the past three or four years. Hey, that was a great game. You know what I mean? Like, that's that you don't have to know it to know something awesome or special or good was taking place when the match happened. You know what I mean? And obviously you're jumping ahead on that, but it's 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 as, almost as simple as that. It's like, man, that was great. You don't have to be heavily invested in it. Well, yeah, because what Osprey said and what Omega said in that press conference, like, it's very easy to pick up on and, and plug into what was happening. It was not, uh, there was not a lot of lore that you had to sift through uh, to understand it. It was all you know, pretty understandable and pretty relatable stuff. Uh, so the show itself, uh, Tokyo Dome, Wrestle Kingdom 17, it started in a way that classic Tokyo Dome shows had started in you know previous pre-pandemic years. We had a great, just about, what, 10 to 12 minutes, I think it went 10 and a half minutes, but a great junior tag title opener uh, with TJP and Francesco Akira, catch 2-2, successfully defending against the team of Yo and Leo Rush. The most noteworthy thing about this match, both in terms of the match and sort of what this means for everybody's careers afterwards that was involved in this match, is that Leo Rush, very early on, like 30 seconds in, got spiked on the ramp. The uh, the alley-oop, as it's called, that sort of throw into an X-factor. He got spiked on the ramp. The ramp had those little... Uh, raised LED lights all the way up and down. And so Leo Rush got busted open bad. I was wondering if this, as this happened, if this was hard away or if New Japan had softened their stance on blood because it worked so well in the story of the match. Uh, but afterwards, it was revealed that Leo Rush has facial injuries and will be out and will also be, in addition to missing any time uh, that he was going to be having with New Japan, will also be missing the uh, the Battle of Los Angeles. Yeah, it was, uh, you knew it was bad because he hit and it was like, ah, and like the, just the hands, like kind of, you know, am I bleeding? I'm bleeding. And he never got up. He was just kind of in that position of like my face. Like, I think I just broke my face and there's blood coming from my face and they pull away. There's action taking place in the ring but the way they're showing it, there's still Rush laid out on the on the ramp, and it's like like something is actually wrong there because <laughs> he's not selling that long. But you know what? It added to the drama of the match because once he did finally drag himself back to the ring and you saw the blood and you saw how much of it there was, you know, it made the hot tag hotter. You know, he is so impressive those misdirection spots and everything that he's able to do, the team that he's had with Yo has been fantastic, and I want to see more of it. I don't know if he's scheduled and penciled in for Fantastica Mania. I'm not sure, but whenever he comes back, I am looking forward to it. And TJP and Akira are incredibly underrated just because they don't get that much attention and they, they don't get talked about a lot. And TJP is a certainly a personality you either like or dislike uh, when he's just being himself. But in the ring, they are a fantastic team. So a great way to open the show. And 
that just sucks for Leo Rush because, again, maybe he's just he should maybe take the first like month or two of the year off every year because during Bola last year he slipped when somebody had thrown something in the ring and ended up getting hurt there too and can couldn't continue on for a few months so. Maybe we need to like block out a little bit of Leo's like you know that time on the schedule. He needs to go on a vacation or something for at least January and February. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I certainly hope. Yeah, that that. Hopefully, he'll be back soon, and hopefully, we'll see a lot more of him in New Japan. Because as we've talked about on on recent episodes, like this is where he belongs. He he's been he was incredible in tag league. He looks great here. He brings something completely different to the junior heavyweight division than they have otherwise. He, he's revitalized Yo's career, and he, he certainly pumped a lot of life into a, a pretty stale junior division. Uh, and I want to see him teaming with Yo. I want to see him in big singles matches. Give me uh, him challenging for the junior heavyweight title at some point uh, in the new year. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully we see him soon. That went 10 minutes and 30 seconds. That was followed by... Second on the main card, the IWGP Women's Championship, Kyrie against Tam Nakano. This got five minutes and 47 seconds. It's impossible not to be frustrated with this only getting five minutes and 47 seconds, particularly when you look at where this championship was placed on the New Japan Stardom Historic Crossover show uh, less than a month ago or a little over a month ago, whatever it's been by this point, seeing that title be presented as the main event of that joint show, and then here being the first defense, second on the card, only getting six minutes, um, it felt more like a high-speed title match than you know the precedent that had been set in the, the original, uh, the Kyrie versus Mayu Iwatani match to crown the champion. That said... The action was awesome. I thought Tam looked great, and it was so cool to see her get this opportunity. If you go back to, you know, the first time uh, there was a stardom offer match on a on a Wrestle Kingdom show, and she didn't uh, get the spot to be in the match. Um, it's great to see her here. Kyrie looked great. We, we've talked about it before. Her last few matches, to me, she's really rounded into form and is back to being the wrestler that she had been. But man, this just could have gone longer. Would have been great when you look at what else was on this card, particularly that never open weight title match. You can't tell me there isn't a way to shave off two minutes from a match here, one minute from a match there, and get this at least up to eight minutes, if not 10 or 12 minutes. But in the end, it was all just a backdrop for the uh, the debut that came immediately after. And that's why it went five minutes and 47 seconds. And... I understand the frustration there, especially on a week where Julia was talking about working with New Japan and not wanting to be a walk behind her when it comes to New Japan. And I know a lot of fans obviously have their frustrations and concerns, you know, going into this thing and looking at this, they don't feel much better. But when you look at all of the matches on the show, with the exception of the last three, none of them went over ten and a half. And I don't know how long the promo and the ring walk was. I can tell you how long the promo. I thought it was felt. about ninety minutes. Yeah, the the promo felt awfully long, 
but the whole package there was probably another, was it a solid four to five minutes at least from her coming out to the time of her leaving and laying her out with the, and people are, well, it's, it's not Sasha's fault. Here's the thing. I don't think that it's, it's Sasha's fault alone that the gory special into the DDT got botched. But I would say on a debut like this, you better have that thing down and the person better know how to take it. And everybody deserves some fault for that. You know, even though accidents happen, you know, everybody, people are like, you know, looking to assign blame and not put it on their person. But like everybody took a little fault in that. Maybe and just play it safe and throw a hard forearm and knock her down. Yeah, like, yeah, or something. You know, <laughs> kick her in the in the belly and throw the DDT that way. I, I know what you it's mean. It's such a contrived move. It's uh, it's a type of thing that, in the context of a match, is fine. But I hate when it's like a confrontation or a promo, and then somebody attacks somebody, and instead of like beating them up, the first thing they do is hook them in their contrived three-step professional wrestling move. So Even if this worked, it would have been suboptimal. Instead, it didn't work, and it was bad, especially considering, like, there, other than, like, when the video came on initially, as Kyrie was celebrating, uh, the lights partially go out, the video comes on, and we get some ooze because it's, it's an outsider. It's a video. It's exciting. And they reacted when her image showed up on the screen. But after that, like the people in this building did not care about this, which is fine. This was clearly something that was done for the U.S. market. And that's obvious by the fact that uh, this match is taking place February 18th, that being Kyrie versus Mercedes Monet in San Jose instead of in early February in Osaka. Um, but yeah, this this anyway. fell very flat. That promo, that promo was someone who has done promos in one promotion, in one way for a long time, out there with no net in front of twenty six thousand eighty five people, and I'm sure she'll get better at it. But she seemed more than a little nervous, and it showed. And I think she may have overthought it. You know, okay, give it breaks. So if there's translation, whatever the thought was, it dragged on too long. And I know, so, oh, you guys are just hammering on her and this and that. Not true, because no, it's I, also one to I grow like on. I'm excited she's there. Yeah. But there's, there's, I'm sorry. There's no way you can objectively watch that promo in particular and think, oh, man, she knocked it out of the park. Yeah. No matter how bad you want her to have knocked it out of the park, it was bad it was stilted it was awkward it was drawn out the when they were just standing there looking at each other it was fine with the title up but the promo took too long the segment took too long you know and again other things like her look or the music or any of that stuff that's to the side i don't care about that you know it but the rest of it that rest of it went too long but again the bottom line is is we're we're gonna see her wrestle and she's there to be a way to hype up things for new Japan. And we'll talk about the numbers after we talk about the show, but she's there to be a draw and a way to expand into the West and a way to add women's matches to their shows. Now, when it comes to the content of this match, I'm sure they were told do your best in six minutes. And they absolutely did their best in six minutes. It was a sprint. We got to see the violet screwdriver. We got to see, you know, again, a, a quick, hard-fought victory for Kyrie. 
and if we keep getting six-minute length matches, then I'll have more of a problem with it. But I'm going to offer some grace for now. But I'm also going to also look at this objectively and know, unless it's like for a reason, like it's, you know, Sasha's going to win the title from Kyrie at the Garden, I don't expect to ever see the IWGP World Women's title above let's say the never open weight championship, depending on who's holding it or the U S title or the world title, you know, much less the world title. So I think people need to have some expectations on what this part of the new Japan stardom relationship is when stardom is on a new Japan card, when it's not a, like a crossover card or something like that. Like, unfortunately this there, it's a preliminary match. Unfortunately, that's how they're going to look at this. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that clearly showed it here. Uh, the difference between a co-promoted, uh, co-presented, co-branded, uh, historic crossover type of show and a New Japan Wrestle Kingdom. I would hope that if the title is defended, say, at Dominion or you know something like that, where it's not quite a Wrestle Kingdom show, maybe you don't have 12 matches on the show, you only have eight. I'd like to think that you know the title will get 15 minutes. I'd hope that at next year's Wrestle Kingdom, if there's an IWGP Women's Championship match and there isn't some big angle they're doing afterward, that the combined amount of time that we had for this match and the post-match angle, which was probably you know 10 to 12 minutes, you'd like to see the match next year get that full 10 to 12 minutes. Um, but yeah, we'll see. As far as the content of the match, I thought the most encouraging thing from a crowd perspective was that for the six minutes that this went, the people were with it. They, they were clapping. They were, you know, their big reactions to, as you said, the violent screwdriver to uh, Kyrie's spinning back fist. Like this didn't come off as something where, all right, it's match two. We're going to go, you know, hit the bathroom. We're going to go hit the merch stand and come back when it's over. Uh, it came off as something that people cared about as much as the other stuff early on in the undercard on this show. So from that, from that standpoint, mission accomplished. Um, the rest of it, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Uh, in the end, like as much as we criticized, rightfully so, the promo and, and some of the presentation, that's not going to matter. They got the sound bites they need to have. They got the visuals they need to have. And going forward, for everyone that didn't see this, uh, the debut is going to come off uh, like it was a great success. And, you know, they're going to wrestle. They're going to main event. Uh, most likely uh, at, at Battle of the Valley, and it's going to be sold out. There are a couple hundred short of a sellout now, and I'm sure they'll, you know, it'll sell out by February 18th. And so, uh, you know, it was a bit rocky, but I think overall, mission accomplished, and, and we'll see where things go from there. Then it was the IWGP World Tag Team Title Match: Hiroki Goto Yoshihashi defeating FTR. Ten minutes, ten seconds. Really good match for what it was. It was 10 minutes and 10 seconds, and it's probably impossible to have a bad tag match with FTR and Goto and Yoshihashi have been around for a long time. Other than Yoshihashi almost killing himself, other other than that, you know, pretty damn good match here. And, you know, again, there weren't a whole lot of... There was one great match on the show. I think there was one really good match, which was the main event. 
And then you had a lot of other solid stuff to differing levels for me. And this was certainly near the top of that list. This and the junior tag, I think, where the if somebody said, okay, you only get four matches, it's the last two, and I think it's the tag matches. Yeah, I would be pretty similar. I would say I would have put the uh, the junior heavyweight four-way, uh, the junior heavyweight singles title four-way, uh, maybe over the main event. Um, but otherwise, I, I agree. I thought this, for the time they had, I thought this was great. Uh, I, I was amused by people who sort of wish cast FTR to not be over in Japan and try to convince themselves that somehow this was a disastrous run for them in new Japan and that nobody cares about them. People popped for all their big stuff. There was a massive reaction when they hit the big rig. So people knew that was their finisher. They thought the match was going to be over. The save happened and people popped for that. Um, I love this. I really hope at some point we see more of FTR in New Japan, I'd love to see them against Naito and Sonata. I'd love to see them against uh, some of the junior heavyweight tag teams. I'd love to see them against, you know, some of the sort of superpowers combining uh, single stars uh, teaming up together. The other thing that I thought was noteworthy both in this match and in the match uh, a couple months ago uh, against uh, Jeff Cobb and Great Khan is that in the U.S., it's clear that while Cash Wheeler is a very good wrestler, Dax Harwood is the star of the team, is the leader of the team, and is the better wrestler. But in Japan, Cash Wheeler comes across much more comfortable in this style and comes across as the leader of the team. It's just a really interesting difference or juxtaposition. You know, when you see guys outside of their home promotion in a different style, sometimes things don't work or roles shift. And to me, it's very clear that in New Japan, Cash Wheeler uh, is the guy steering the ship for FTR, and it was fun to see him here. Uh, just really, really crisp. He had a great suicide dive. I know Dax Harwood's dealing with some injuries, and he still is good in this match. But, yeah, I thought Cash was the star here. Yeah, you know, I hope this isn't it for them, too, with New Japan, because we, we've we only seen two matches in Japan, you know, from them. that, that It's been this one, the last one, that was it. You know, we saw the, the Aussie Open match, the was in London. We had the match with Okan and Cobb. The first one was the three-way at Forbidden Door. And, you know, I want to see more of them mixing it up with these different teams. Obviously, TMDK, I'm sure they could have a really good match against now that they're reestablished, and we'll get to that in a moment. And I just hope that unless they go to WWE, whether they are involved with A and E or A A and E AEW or not, well, if they go to WWE and stay there for a while, they <laughs> might get an A and E biography special. Mike. They very well could. They or very well they could. may get released. <laughs> or that's <laughs> that's possible as well too. After doing some wacky skits, but uh, yeah, so. I hope they are going to be back in New Japan in some form or another, you know, before too long, and certainly before their contracts may or may not be running out with All Elite. Yeah, yeah, I definitely am on the same page there. New Japan World TV title, you talk about championships, you talk about belt designs. Uh, I don't know, we'll see how this goes as far as the division is concerned, but... 10 minutes and 32 seconds of hook this directly into my veins professional wrestling. Mike Zack Sabre Jr. and Red Narita doing the New Japan that I like to see. Zack Sabre Jr. gets the win, the cross arm breaker, and post match, 
We have our first of many different angles, alliance switching, uh, faction shuffling that we saw between this show and New Year Dash as uh, TMD, uh, TMDK, that being Shane Haste and Mikey Nichols, hit the ring. It looks as though they're going to take out Zack Sabre Jr. Maybe one of them is going to challenge for the uh, the world TV title. Or my initial thought was they're going to beat Zack Sabre Jr. down. And here comes Taichi. And in fact, Dangerous Techers are still staying together post, uh, post-Suzuki-Goon breakup. Instead, they hand the newly blonde Zack Sabre Jr. that TMDK t-shirt. And Zack Sabre Jr. is now the front man for TMDK, which will be interesting in that Haste and Nichols are very talented. They're a very good tag team. Not the most charismatic guys in the world. And now Zack Sabre Jr. goes from being a guy that's part of this glorious band of merry thieves. And he's got this awesome odd couple team and friendship with Tai Chi. Uh, now he basically they're basically cashing in all of that cachet and putting him with two guys that now it's on Zack Sabre Jr. to be the star, to be the entertaining guy in the group, and to sort of raise those guys up to his level uh, in the fans' eyes. It's going to – it really could go either way. I'm really interested to see how this plays out, if it succeeds in bringing uh, TMDK up to his level, or Zack Sabre Jr. kind of falls down a level or two, uh, you know, being a part of being the leader of this group. I think he's going to bring them up. And during the press conference, he comes out with that blonde hair and it's like, you know what, everything we were thinking about before the show as to why Sabre could end up winning this title and be the first representative as the New Japan World Television Champion, it's like, okay, they're going to do it. And the same thing when TMDK went out there, it's like, well, got a new belt, a new look. He's talking about his new singles ways. We are finally going to see Zack Sabre Jr. lead a group, and unfortunately, it doesn't look like Taichi is going to be a part of that, but I don't think it's going to stop here. And if these guys can play the role of being goofballs for Sabre and being or being, you know, arrogant hype men or whatever it is, I think Sabre is so charismatic and has got such a good connection with those fans and knows right what to do at the right time during matches that can bring people up and down that, you know, if they can get something by osmosis just being around them, they're going to be a lot better off for it. And I think it will be interesting to see how this group grows. You know, it's no spoiler, you know, because we're going to get to it later. You know, they've they've dragged in Kosei Fujita into this mix. So we've got a young boy that's probably going to play possibly towards tours. TMDK, obviously everybody speaks English. That plays well to run Revolution Pro, to run in the States, to come to AEW or do Ring of Honor. And I also then think that now we're going to have at least one person with some experience that he's going to latch on to from the Japanese scene. And now it's just going to be a matter of who, because it looks like Taka's got his group together, you know, and it looks like that, you know, it's very much possible that Taichi is going to be part of that. So 
I, it's going to be interesting to see who they're going to pull in because I don't think that the group is going to function without it. And I also wonder if this was something that maybe Narita was going to win the belt and it was going to be Jonah, or maybe they were going to do this group and Jonah was going to be a part of it and he was going to be the killer for Zach. You know, I, my mind did start going that way too when I saw them all together as to, man, I wonder if that would have been a foursome together. Yeah, would this have happened if Jonah hadn't gone back to WWE? It, it's you know, it's hard to know, but you'd think like this big of a, a change for Zack Sabre Jr. Like they seriously, they, they clearly are going to have plans for him, and so it feels like this something that this is something that would have been in the works either way. Um, a few things first with Kosei Fujita, you know that that as you said that took place at New Year Dash. As I was watching that, to me, the idea of Fujita as a young lion joining TMDK, like, while on the surface, that's a relatively minor thing. It really might be one of the most significant developments in New Japan Pro Wrestling in a long time. Because what it shows is that the talk last year at those Bushiro New Japan business presentations about needing to progress young wrestlers sooner um, needing young wrestlers to be stars, not waiting five years from a guy's debut, uh, you know, going two, three years through the young lion process, a couple years, uh, on excursions and then coming back and being a star, you know, by the time they're nearing 30, this shows that on some level that wasn't all talk and they are in the process of, to some degree, changing the young lion process while it, it was made clear it was made clear that Kosei Fujita is still a young lion. He is now Zack Sabre Jr. and TMDK's young boy. This is still a seismic shift in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Having a young lion join a faction, not just being a part of Hontai until they go on excursion, that is a seismic shift. I know some people won't be happy about it. Some people that are you know, super traditionalists. I mean, you and I, Mike, have been following New Japan as long or longer than anyone that's talking about this promotion on the air right now. So we could be called traditionalists. I, however, am thrilled, thrilled that they are doing this. When you look at uh, young wrestlers in stardom, you know, sub 20, sometimes sub 18 becoming stars. You look at uh, wrestlers in Dragon Gate debuting and almost immediately becoming stars and major players in their early 20s. Um, you have to start going in this direction to some degree, and I'm thrilled that they're doing this here. Um, can't wait to see what's going to happen with it. I thought at New Year's Dash, the other interesting thing was when Fujita joins, they immediately switch cameras and they go to a shocked and surprised and disappointed Ryohei Oiwa. And so now is uh, it immediately makes you think, is there going to be a recruiting effort from a different faction, a different stable to have Oiwa join? So it, it's, you know, Fujita to me looked like he was going to be like, I thought, man, if they ever change their ways, could he be a Suzuki Goon young lion? A and we're getting the next best thing now with him uh, uh, being under Zack Sabre Jr. We have been talking about the same guys for years, okay? With the exception of Hiromu Takahashi and, and a handful of others, when you go down the list, TJP we were talking about 
as one of the original New Japan Dojo guys. Carl Anderson, one of the original New Japan Dojo guys. Rocky Romero, one of the original Inoki New Japan LA Dojo guys. Zack Sabre Jr.'s been there forever. Desperado. Uh, And he's a different subject, but Okada, Tanahashi, Tamatanga, Zack Sabre, Goto, we've been talking about, for the most part, the same guys for a long time. Tetsuya Naito, I mean, basically, other than Jay White, the the top of the card for New Japan is almost unchanged over the past decade. Yeah, and when... (laughs) And when you take out Jay White and his generational guys, it looked, we thought, was going to be Juice Robinson. Well, he's not there. David Finley, he's not there, or at least not really there right now. Like, they, like the great Okan needed to be a hit because, you know, Watto in some ways needed to be a hit. He hasn't been. Okan has in some ways. But, like, Phantasmo and Robbie Eagles... And Sho and Yo and Hanare and Yodasuji and Fujita and Narita and Umino, if I didn't say them, and Oiwa and Bolton and Lube and Nakashima and all of these other guys, like they have got to be accelerated because you can rely on Will Ospreay only so long because. Age-wise versus body-wise, that's the problem. Psychologically, he's going to be able to go for a long time. Jay White, if his body stays together, he sticks around, he'll be around for a long time. Okada, obviously, is going to be able to ride off into the sunset in a great way. But, like, these other guys, like, we, all of these other people that your Yoshihashis, your Godos, your Sonatas, your Desperados, you know... Unfortunately or unfortunately, we know where they're slotted. I'm not saying that a Shingo could never win the IWGP title because he did. But for the most part, we know where those guys are and what they are. You know, that's why the Osprey Omega match was so much more exciting than for a lot of reasons than the Okada White match was because it was different. And they need to click on characters. They need to click on wrestlers. They need to click on guys like right away because, again, as much as I like seeing third generation guys like Nagata and Suzuki and guys like that, like... At some point, there needs to be other guys in those matches who we've been watching for literally 20 years on Dome shows. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and the the one guy that you didn't mention is the one guy that if New Japan is, is serious about you know accelerating the pushes and the development and the process for younger guys, the one guy that to me, if he's not back in the promotion by next year, by January 4th, 2024, if not, honestly, I would say six months prior to that, and getting a major push as a top guy, then to me, something seriously wrong, something is seriously wrong, is Yuya Uemura. That guy, already, if you put him in New Japan right now, he's top five in the company. And I'm not just talking about top five young guys. I'm talking about top five wrestlers in the promotion. He is already... One of the best wrestlers in the world. He's on his excursion now. You know, he's killing it wherever he goes. He had that awesome match with Speedball Mike Bailey a few weeks back. That guy needs to be back. He needs to be pushed. 
he needs to be the next guy. As much as, and we'll get to it uh, a few, in a few minutes, as much as I like Shota Umino and I think he's very good, he is nowhere near the wrestler, the babyface, the uh, whatever you want to say uh, to you, you, uh, you, 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 So that to me is, is the thing to watch out for in 2023 going into 2024 is what is the trajectory of Uemura? Well, and you know what? Remember Tanahashi and Nakamura in Shibata? There were other guys. One of them was Yutaka Yoshi. And you know what? Somebody's going to have to be Yoshi out of those guys. Because when I look at, you know, Yoda Suji and Uemura and Narita and and Umino, it's like, we'll see what happens with Yoda Suji, but he is so charismatic. He's got such a look. We'll see how he is repackaged because we've seen it a million times. A guy goes and gets sent away. We watch him the little bit we can on his excursions, and we've been able to see more of him because he's been in CMLL. But they'll go back to Japan and be completely different from whatever they were doing. Now, Nakamura was different. He went down for a refreshment and acted even more weird and then came back even crazier from Mexico to kind of refine his character. But or Naito we, being another example, the transition from Stardust yeah. genius to what he is now. Yeah, so, and I think... Well, I, that may be that may be more of the answer, Mike. Sorry to jump in. I just, yeah. I, I, that may be more of the answer going forward is, you know, maybe... You know, guys, you know, they're a young lion for a year, tops. They go on a six-month excursion, tops. And then they come back, and if it works, great. If it doesn't work, then they go on another short excursion because everything you just said, we've seen it with Naito, we've seen it with Nakamura. They went on that sort of secondary shorter excursion. They came back and it worked. You know, that may be the way to accelerate things yet also build in the possibility that, okay, maybe the first iteration didn't take and you can still send the guy away rather than having to go five, six years through that process. Because you just you just mentioned uh, Shota Umino, Ren Narita, uh, Yu Yu Yoda Yodasuji. Those are going to be like arguably maybe the four top guys in the company. But it's frustrating when you see how good to great they all already are to sit here and think well that's going to be the case but we know it's not going to be that for at least five more years yeah and all those guys are going to be into their other than you and they're all going to be into their 30s by that point basically yes yes there's no reason to let to let guys athletic primes go by the wayside before you actually start pushing them it's i love the young lion system It, it it there are a lot of great things about it, but like so many things in life, it needs to be adjusted and it needs to be changed. It's just it's just how things go. And I think of those four, you know, if my, it's hard to think that Uemura isn't going to be the top dog ultimately, at least the way it looks right now. I agree with you 100% there. I think Narita with his pedigree, with his wrestling style, I think he is always going to be, he seems to be like the the long and strong, steady guy to go on. And we'll see what happens with Suji. I don't, like like you, 
Uh, we'll see what happens with Umino. And if he's a, a much bigger attraction to, to the West because of how he started and the relationship with, with Moxley and all that stuff, maybe he becomes more of a Muda figure to Western fans, whereas, you know, they look at Chodo and Hashimoto as the the cool and the money in Japan. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Yeah. But I there's there's a hole there that again I haven't seen in Fujita and Fujita will be exposed when he comes back and we'll see, you know, exactly how things go there and we might think differently about it. But man, right now yeah, it's hard to think about a moon, you know, Shota as being a heavyweight banger and in the mix, you know, on the regular with the Jay Whites and the Will Ospreys and the Okadas and, and you know, that level of guy. Well, they're trying really hard to make it happen. I still especially just, when Hiromo should probably be that guy. But well, yeah, that's that's the elephant in the room <laughs> is that we've talked about on last week's show. The solution to so many issues, at least short term is bump up Hiromu into the heavyweight division uh, and, and go from there. But, yeah, I still think the jury's out for, for Shota Umino, whether it's Hiroshi Tanahashi or Hiroki Goto. But clearly, uh, and it's one match ahead, so we'll get to it in a moment. But, I mean, maybe it's just a matter of, well, he's the guy they had here to put in that spot. But it's a pretty big statement having him team with Keiji Muto and Hiroshi Tanahashi and get the win, him being the one to get the pinfall in that match. like. They are going to go all out with Umino. I just don't know. I'm just not sure yet if he's if he's that that you know that A plus guy or if he's more of a B B plus guy. Um, I don't have really much of anything to say about Tamatanga versus Carl Anderson, Mike. It was good. It was better than I thought. The finish was botched to a point to where I almost wondered whether Carl Anderson kind of did that on purpose. Um, oh come on! It was fine. I didn't need to see it. I don't need to see it anytime going forward. I don't know or understand at this point why the Never Openweight title exists, uh, but it does. Hopefully, Tama can do something more interesting with it than we've seen really anyone do with it over the past couple of years because Carl Anderson is Never Openweight title, zero title reign. It did nothing for me. Uh, Jay White holding that belt really did nothing for it or the belt or him. And so, you know, in a world where the TV title exists, in a world where the KOPW uh, title is a belt now and has uh, different stipulations, but, you know, we saw Taichi and Shingo basically have old school, never open weight style matches for that belt. Um, this this belt really kind of, you know, it doesn't have a reason to exist right now. Yeah, you know, if it went away, it wouldn't hurt my feelings. But, you know, if it was just a Haas belt, then I'd be okay with it if it was all Hoss battles, but you can never really guarantee that, can you? And I, well, I guess you can because it's pro wrestling. They did a pretty good <laughs> job of guaranteeing that for <laughs> like six or seven years. That's that's true, but yeah, I think it's outlived its usefulness. Um, Carl Anderson has outlived his usefulness I was with New say. Japan, and I like Carl. And I, you, <laughs> I, here's the thing: I think you know with. I think Adam's reaction said it for how he feels about this whole situation, how he feels about Carl Anderson and Tamatanga's lot and things that it was a pretty good match. You know, it actually, it was up until that, that, that end. But the problem was there was a shadow over the whole thing as to, okay, how is this going to end? What is it going to be? You know, is it going to be a bunch of BS attached to it? And we, we didn't really get that other than the, the botched ending, but 
you know, Tamatanga with the belt. Okay, what does this mean? We know he's not at Okada in Jay White's level. We know that. You know, he's still going to be up higher in the mix, and I'm not I'm not against that, but you gotta do something to make me care about Tamatanga in this never open way title now. What are you gonna give me? What feud are you gonna have? How are you going to make this thing work? And if it's, you know, evil or something like that, then, eh, you know what? Uh, I'm not feeling good about it. Yeah, I, I'm not really either. This felt like more of a gold watch thing. I don't know. Just to me, when a guy's been in a promotion so long that what what you're doing with him as well, we've got to find something to do with him. We've got to find a belt to give him because he's here. When that's the reason, you know, I, I don't know. That they all need necessarily... to go to WWE. And I yes. know, and I know that that uh, that Camacho slash uh, Tangaloa was already there, but like Tamatanga is perfect for a role there. I think Hikaleo. We'll get to that later because a lot of attention's been on Jay White. Like Hikaleo is on paper perfect to go to WWE, and frankly, at this point in his career. With the fact that with you look at how how New Japan... Look, Aaron Hanari should be more of an important project for New Japan right now because of where he is and how he, far he is along in comparison to Hikaleo. So you know what? Focus on him. Let Hikaleo go for two, three, four years, whatever it's going to be. You may not get him back, but you may get him back. And if you get well, him back... no great loss if you don't. And the thing is, if he develops there then he comes back, then it's just a benefit for you because he was seasoned somewhere else and he's still got a name with you, you know? They haven't killed him in Japan. So, I again, we'll get to that a little bit later on too, but, like, that's a whole group that, frankly, would be better off actually going to WWE and clear up a bunch of room, you know, that, that something else could be worked out or somebody else can kind of come up and rise up and take those spots. And I have nothing against any of those guys. I like Tamatanga, but... Frankly, he'd probably be better off. Everybody would be better off in WWE. Hey, in induct Haku slash Meng into the Hall of Fame this year and get everybody in there for post-WrestleMania. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, outside of top, top guys, pro wrestling is not built for mid-card, lower mid-card, even upper mid-card guys to be in the same promotion for 15 years. Unless it's a, one guy in every territory, there was one. You had to, you yes. know, that was it. You had to have the one yes. milkman or the one moose or the one whoever it was. Yeah, it, exactly. You don't need 5, 10, 15 guys that are all mid-carders that are in your promotion for 15 years. There's only so many stories you can tell. It gets stale. That was one of the great things about the territory era. It's one of the worst things about modern professional wrestling that, that guys do just stay in one promotion for so long. And like I said, for Okada or Tanahashi, yes, obviously you want those guys to be there their whole careers, but for mid-card guys, it really doesn't do them any good. It doesn't do the the products any good for them to be there forever. So. And that's not all their fault. Look, it's not their no. fault that the booking and the storytelling has been stale. It was stale for the damn main event, let alone for the rest of the mid-card and a lot of the other stuff that has been happening with New Japan for several years now. So don't, don't want to make it sound like we're bagging on the people. In fact, no. we want to benefit the people by getting them out. And again, they could, again them with an association with the bloodline. And there's a lot of things that on paper you look at 
that group, you know, the entire group, all of the Tongans in WWE, and it makes more sense now for them to be there and actually open up some room for, you know, the South Pacific crew and whoever gets trained through Fale. And obviously we're seeing Oceana and all that other stuff. Like, I'd like to see some people actually develop from the Tongan Islands, from Australia, from New Zealand, who now get those spots and who are... You know, again, take those, but I've spoken too much about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of just... rambling, even by my standards on this show. <laughs> I apologize. Holy shit. I mean, it's bad mid-card storytelling, and it's also just guys have been there for a long time. Even if it was top-tier booking and storytelling, there still are only so many stories you can tell with a guy that's, you know, in the mid card. And so, yeah, it's much like this topic. It's time to move on uh, from those guys. I and would I'm say walking and away from it like KG Muto would. <laughs> yes. Uh, KG Muto, New Japan Pro Wrestling last match. It was KG Muto, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Shota Umino taking on the LIJ trio of Tetsuya Naito, Sonata, and Bushi. As we said last week, the only question was which of these guys was going to pin Bushi. It was, in fact, Shota Umino. Uh, as I said earlier, I think the story of this match was the presentation of Shota Umino here with Muto and Tanahashi sort of being positioned as the next generation in that lineage. He gets the pin on Bushi with the Death Rider, uh, and we see where things go from here. You know, obviously we'll get to there's the New Japan Noah show, and the next thing on the docket uh, for Naito is the singles match with Keno. But clearly in the build to the Tokyo Dome and in this match here, uh, outside of that, it, it looks like we're, we're careening headlong towards Shota Umino and Tetsuya Naito having a big singles match. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. No. Completely fine with that. It's uh, Shota Umino should get a lot out of that. A lot, in fact. He should get everything he can. But when it came to this match... I liked on paper, again, the three generations, and hey, it was what it was, and yay, we got Mudo on the last one, and on paper, like I said, you look at the six names, and man, that's cool, but no one will ever watch this match back again. Um, No. You know, Umino can have the clip of Muto, you know, him hitting the Death Rider and having Muto next to him in his entrance video for years, and that's as much as he's going to get out of this. And any rub from KG Muto, you know, his rub is going to come from Roshi Tanahashi. But yeah, Muto you... had no interest in interacting with Shota Umino no. at all in the, this match. The Tanahashi... It, it, it... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it was funny. It reminded me so much of his interaction uh, with uh, Kaito Kiyomiya, uh, you know, in their uh, in the New Japan versus Noah show last year as well. Like he just he had no interest in being associated with this. The Tanahashi spot where he stopped Muto from hitting <laughs> the moonsault was fantastic. It was the highlight of the matches, one of the highlights of the night for me, as far as sight gags go. In Tanahashi is always good for one every once in a while. That That is great, and I thought that was a great one. And Muto did as little as Muto could, and that was fine. I don't want to see him do any more, frankly. So, But coming out of it, I'm just sitting there, and I'm thinking about Tanahashi and Naito, and it's like, ah, well, that was a Tokyo Dome that, that went by, and 
and you guys were on it. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, it's everything about it was like, oh, that happened, didn't it? Yeah, for all intents and purposes, this was a uh, a skip year uh, for Tanahashi and Naito in the Dome. And, you know, it makes you wonder, even though after this Dome show, Naito talked about, you know, well, now begins his road to being in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom next year. And, you know, maybe. But also, I mean, I feel like over the past year or so, hearing Naito say these things where before it was the start of an actual storyline leading to him getting in the Tokyo Dome main event it's starting to feel like when you watch the backstage comments and, you know, Yuji Nagata or Togi Makabe is talking about how they're going to work their way to, to get an IWGP title shot. And you're like, yeah, you know, you just kind of feel like patting on the top of the head and say, you know, it's nice that you still have goals, but it's not going to happen. You wonder if we're starting to get to that, you know, that realm with Tetsuya Naito, which it's a conundrum because he still is by far the most over guy, the most popular guy, the biggest merch seller in the company, but they, you know, they seem to be ready to move on from the idea of Tetsuya Naito being, you know, in big championship matches, uh, you know, in winning the IWGP world title, at least, you know, and it, it, this is a, a much larger conversation for another show, but it also makes you wonder going forward, what is the f- the future of Los Ingobernables Ingo Seapon, L.I.J.? And the one thing I can't help shake uh, is when you talk about those, you know, the four or five guys that are either on excursion or have recently come back from excursion. Every time I see Yoda Suji and I see him in CMLL and I see the character and I see the charisma, I can't help but think, if LIJ is going to be a generational thing, meaning it's going to last more than this generation of New Japan, I can't help but think, is Yoda Suji going to come back and sort of start to take the mantle uh, of top guy in LIJ from Tetsuya Naito in you know, two, three, four, five years from now, if not sooner? Yeah, you know, I would, I would rather see Naito step back and let Hiromu take control as a heavyweight, you know, because that's the fantasy booking in my mind. I think Sonata's only getting so far. I never really want to see that group break up or see Naito break away from them. They're all all perfectly wacky together, but that's, you know, that's how I would bring in Suji, you know, along with them, and then you could decide what you want to do from there with Suji, you know what I mean? You know, adding Titan to the mix I thought was good, even though... He's over there rarely. I thought it was a nice touch, especially because I like Titan. You know, I think Sonata and Bushi outside of that group, what are they? You know, what really are they? Well, they're not much when you look at, you know, just as an example, they were on that late December 30th show. And as much as I love Sonata and Bushi and they're great parts of LIJ, they meant nothing in terms of attendance on that show. It barely cleared a thousand at Tokyo Dome City Hall uh, and was, you know, I, I think one of, if not their you know, their smallest draws of the three or four shows they've done in that building. So they're, they're great pieces. They're nice complimentary pieces, but they're not, they're not difference makers in any way. No. And like you mentioned, if you want to make it a unit that continues on, you know, then you're going to have to do something like that. But I, I guess Naito's going to say he's coming back for the title until it's one year too late or one month, one week, whatever, too late with people wanting to hear it. And then 
then it's really, you know, I'm not saying bad feelings or anything like that, but unless you can easily build a story with him against Okada or him against Kenny Omega or him against John Moxley or him against whoever in the main event of next year's Tokyo Dome where he's going after the belt and could win it. But we've been talking about this now for a long time. It's become a meme seemingly with Naito fans going, this is going to be the year. And it never, you know, it never ends up happening. So until it does, you know, I think he's just going to continue to say it because until it doesn't work anymore or until people stop standing for the moment or whatever, however you'd want to say it, I I guess you go ahead and you keep saying it because as long as somebody believes and as long as they're selling merch and people believe in them and they do, you know, enough people are going to go along for the ride and have enough hope. Yeah, yeah, and that clearly seems to be, uh, at least for the immediate future, the direction. Um, I think a lot will be told by when Naito and Shota Umino do have that singles match. You know, if they really strap the rocket to Umino and have him beat Naito and then go on to get a title shot some point mid-year against Okada, or... You know, does Naito beat Shota Umino and it's going to be a bit longer uh, runway for for Umino to get, you know, to get to actually beat one of the top three or four singles guys in New Japan? It really will. To me, that's one of the most interesting matches that they have potentially coming up because both the match will be good and the result, I think, will tell us a lot about the directions of two guys that are, you know, at different ends of the spectrum as far as where they're at in their careers, their trajectories, and how much time they have left. If they beat Naito, I would be shocked. I would be really surprised, and I would hope that there's something going in both directions for both men to capitalize on doing something like that. I think it's going to be more of a light on on Umino to, you know, hey, like... Can you hang with this guy? Can you hang with this big star? How are you in his presence just walking around the ring with him? How do the fans respond to you when there is this mega star there? So I think I think it's all about the performance, but I think I would be very surprised. Again, I I would like to see what the what the you know what the the next trigger point is after that if it happens that Naito actually is looking up at the the lights for the the end. Yeah, I mean, I think if Umino beats Naito, it clearly would be he gets a title shot at Okada, loses, puts in a great effort, and the idea is well, all right, he's at that level now. the The, the funny thing about that would be that if Shota Umino beats Naito and the crowd rejects it. Umino would then be in the exact same situation as Naito, who they've been pushing on commentary that Umino idolized the pre-LIJ Stardust genius version of Naito, who got rejected by the fans when they did not think he was ready for the role that he was in. So it's... uh, So so did you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's... To me, it's like we said, on a lot of levels, it's one of the most interesting matches and results, uh, you know, that they could put together. So we'll see what happens there. The next match, junior heavyweight title four away. Really enjoyed it. It was Hiromu Takahashi, Taiji Ishimori, El Desperado, and Master Wato. It's just weird because, like, we talk about on the show, love Hiromu. He's great. He's the biggest star in the junior heavyweight division. But, man... 
I really am not dying to see another Hiromu Takahashi Jr. heavyweight title reign. I know we've said it three or four times in this show. We both are in the tank for the idea. It's clearly not the direction they're going. But every time they put the belt, the junior belt, back on Hiromu, I just sigh because it means that, you know, we're going to see him wrestling and defending against the same five or six guys that he's wrestled and defended against for the last five or six years instead of in the mix in the heavyweight division against Okada, Naito, Jay White, Hiroshi Tanahashi, all those guys that we haven't seen by and large, big singles matches for Hiromu. All those matches we want to see, we're just not going to get. Like, God damn it, I want Hiromu and Zack Sabre Jr. But we're not going to get that. Instead, we're going to get Hiromu against Yo, Hiromu against Watu, uh, Watu, Ishimori. I'll never complain about Hiromu against Desperado. But, man, it just kind of feels like he's spinning his wheels. Yeah, yeah, that's... uh. Period. Point blank. That's it and that's all. And I know Japanese fans look at Naito and Hiromu maybe a little bit differently than Western fans do. But, I mean, I can't believe that people don't or would not take him in the mix amongst top heavyweights. I mean, we've seen him with Will Ospreay. We've seen him with Shingo. We've seen him with... We saw him challenge evil, and that was super accepted by the fan base to the point where... You know, people actually, including me and you, allowed themselves to believe in that match that Hiromu might beat Evil yeah. and win the title, even if we didn't think that going in. He's a superstar. He is a superstar. And I don't know what the contract situation is with El Desperado, but, you know, he again, I, I, I we've been there for his whole, the whole turn to Desperado from day one we loved, I think. He is a fabulous character. I would believe him to be another take another reign as IWGP light heavyweight champion and and cruise with it for a while. But the reality is, is maybe he is better off other places, other parts of the card, doing some other things as opposed to being in the title mix. Taiji Ishimori, I think, is going to remain in the title mix, and that's fine. Old pro, no problem there. Master Watto, you pretty much, I don't want to say you killed him for me, but here's the deal. he He's going to screw up again. Oh, he should have got the pin, but no. You know what? Yes, he, he should have went for the pin, but now he survived. And look at him go and look at everything he had. And I just don't think if you're trying to tell the story of Watto finally wins the big one, like if you weren't going to do it here in this position... It ain't going to work any other time you do it. At least it's going to be hard for me to believe it. So I felt like put up or shut up time. Yeah. And the way they were going, the way they built it, they were telling that deal and it got slipped away from him. But here he goes back again. And then it ends up being Hiromu again. And it's like, eh. And we've talked about Hiromu at nauseum about, you know, where we think he should be. And like I mentioned, Ishimori's there. But now it's like, you know, Phantasmo's a heavyweight. So, you know, I, I don't know what the, the deal is going to be with show, you know, as far as the KOPW title and maybe his lot in life is set there. But, like, there are a bunch of other guys, the Eagles and the, the Yo's and the Rushes, and there are other guys that now need to be in that mix because 
I think I know exactly what Watto is, and I know as much as his character can vacillate to, but he better not be the guy that takes the title off Hiromu because you're going to need a lot of challengers to make it believable. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, the whole Watto thing is just so weird, and he hasn't done himself any favors because he's he, just he's fine, but he's not great in ring. But like his character is dork, idiot, and loser. Like he he that suit that he wore, which was way too big, looked like a dork in the press conference. He's an idiot. Like they they, they point out on commentary all the time that he just never knows when to go for the pin. He always just keeps going for the RPP and it doesn't work. Or he just, he just lets opportunities go by. And then he just always loses the big one. And I don't know. I know he's still early in his career, but at a certain point you just feel like, all right, he's a dork. He's an idiot and he's a loser. And that's as a fan, how I'm going to view him as a wrestler. Uh, The last thing I'll just say on Hiromu is that, as you said, the, the key thing is he is a star. He is a superstar. He is, one of the most charismatic guys in all of professional wrestling. The junior heavyweight division is, was, and always will be in New Japan, a mid-card and undercard division and championship. When I have a guy who is that undeniable of a superstar, I am not going to put a ceiling over his head that he can't get past as far as being a difference-making star, yet that is what they continue to do with Hiromu. Maybe it's what he wants. Maybe it's what they want. Either way, it's counterproductive. There, There's a plethora of money matches that they just refuse to make with him. And God knows if we'll ever see it. Um, I'd much rather see him in the mix with two former junior heavyweights who successfully transitioned to being heavyweights and had one of, if not the greatest professional wrestling matches of all time, that being Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay. It was decent. It was all right. <laughs> it it was it was decent. I was racking my brain <laughs> thinking, Mike, about like what matches have I seen in my life that were actually better than this? And there aren't many. I, I would say for me, for my money, the greatest professional wrestling match of all time is Kazuchika Okada against Katsuri Shibata from April of twenty seventeen. I would say the third Omega uh, Okada match. I would say, and it's a completely different thing, but I'll go to my grave saying it's perfect professional wrestling. War Games 1992, Sting Squadron, Dangerous Alliance. Um, I could think of maybe four, maybe five matches that I've seen in my life that are on this level or maybe slightly better than this, but... It's a very short list, and I could be very easily convinced, particularly on a rewatch, which I haven't done yet, that this is, you know, the best match I've ever seen. I, I'd certainly throw uh, 6394 uh, Misawa and Kawada in that mix as well. But if this isn't top five, um, I don't know. I, I'd have a hard time believing it's not. Hey, look, it's it's a classic. No matter how you cut it, no matter how many stars somebody wants to give to it, no matter how much compare and contrast goes on, all art is subjective. But what is objective is when you have a big budget that hits. You can look and go, that was money. And 
Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay was money. Flair Steamboat, money. Flair Funk, Briscoe Funk, Misawa Kawada, anything that you want to name. Like, Okada Tanahashi. Okada Okada, Ta- oh, Omega. my God. Okada, look, when people would talk about uh, Okada and, and uh, were, uh, again, Tanahashi and Okada – Boy, did they have some great stuff. And Omega and Okada, obviously, you know, leading into this. I mean, I just, I don't care how you cut it. It was a classic. And even in, like we mentioned earlier on, even if you didn't know all of the backstory, you know, one, you got it on commentary. So there was that. But also the story they were telling in the match was pretty was pretty blatant you know what i mean you don't have to know everything about pro wrestling to watch this fight you know this extended fight scene break out ap- across your screen it was it was great like i just i don't know what else to say about it the athleticism you again, do they take it to a level that needs to be taken to with some of the physicality? No, but it's also not me who's going to have to walk with this, you know, or not walk, you know, later on down the line. So, so that happens to be what it is, you know what I mean? And I don't award any extra points in my mind to that the same way I don't take away any from past generations because, you know, they, they, they weren't working this style because everything was different then. Like, it's just a great match with a great story, with great physicality, with great characters that were clearly defined, with stories and emotions that were blatantly given and shown to the fans at home and to the fans in the building. And it was as much as people look. When there's a great fight, it's a piece of art. And and Kenny Omega, and look, Kenny Omega, Cody Rhodes with the with the the promos, all that stuff. You know, there is a, a joke that can be made at those guys about art. But great piece of a great fight, like I said, a great sporting event, a great moment in sports. Hey, that's art, and they put on a piece of art at the Tokyo Dome. Well, to me, the best thing about this. It was that it was great, I think, in a different way than a lot of people would have expected coming in. Like, yes, there were crazy athletic spots, but this was not a 35-minute back-and-forth uh, athletic can-you-top-this sort of match. This was a very story-heavy match with Kenny Omega dominating, Will Ospreay selling, Will Ospreay coming back, and then Will Ospreay being put down uh, you know, by uh, the most uh, sure thing money finisher in all of wrestling, the one winged angel. You know, and, and Dave talked about this a little bit, but it was clear watching this as well. The thing that was incredible is that this is, you know, one it's in the argument. It is legitimately in the, in the discussion for greatest professional wrestling match of all time. And it was very clearly at the same time structured, put together and worked as the first match in a series of matches, a match to lay the groundwork for what will eventually be the true blowaway match that these two guys will have against each other. And yet, even with those constraints, it was still one of, if not the best match of all time. Like that, that is a remarkable 
achievement from both of these guys. The other thing, which I know other people, other people have talked about as well, but it was the first thing that I thought just with the entrance. And then as the match started is how different Kenny Omega feels in Japan, in new Japan and how much this felt like what Kenny Omega is supposed to be versus the presentation that we see of him in AEW. And he's great in AEW, and, and I've enjoyed a lot of what he's done there. But, man, like, immediately, this just felt like this was a different guy than AEW Kenny Omega. This Kenny Omega had taken three, four years off, and then all of a sudden he was back in New Japan again having a match like this. I... Really hope, and it certainly seems, considering that he won the U.S. title here, that we will be seeing more of Kenny Omega in New Japan, whether it be on upcoming U.S. shows, where it seems like even though they haven't announced it yet, it feels like we might be be getting Kenny Omega and Jeff Cobb uh, for the IWGP U.S. title uh, at Battle in the Valley. Certainly, I think we'll see him in the U.S., but I hope we see him a few more times in Japan as well, because this is, without a doubt the best presentation of Kenny Omega, the professional wrestler, uh, you know, that we've seen. Yeah. We're definitely going to see him back in Japan. I guess there's no guarantees in life, but you know, Osprey in AEW and Omega back in new Japan more times only makes sense. Even if it's only against each other, you know, and there's ancillary things like, you know, Jeff Cobb stepping up for Will Osprey and facing Omega, because Kenny Omega gets the win there. It doesn't really hurt anybody. You know, nobody's injured by that deal whatsoever. And it's probably going to be a great match because, you know, why wouldn't it be? So, you know, awesome. And we've watched Kenny Omega's pretty much his whole career in DDT and coming over to New Japan. And, you know, was it All Japan? Was Where was he at? Was he in Noah or All Japan? Uh, no, he had that run in the junior division in All Japan. All Japan, yeah. That's what, okay. That's that, For some reason, I thought that had stuck out. But, you know, him going back there and knowing exactly, exactly, and again, I didn't know who Sephiroth was. I, don't, I didn't play Final Fantasy VII. Okay, those things are lost on me. You know what I mean? But as far as him coming back with the... Hollywood style overproduction, like everything about it was like, you knew what you were getting. You probably even again, and they did a great job as far as for a lot of people not knowing who was going to win the match. And a lot of people, you know, thinking that Osprey could win. Hey, you know, I thought he could, but the way they played the whole thing out, I thought was, you know, it was pretty perfect. And Hey, look, I can still watch right now Buddy Rogers and Pat O'Connor at Comiskey Park and tell you why that was one of the greatest matches of all time and how it actually ushered in an era. And you know what? I, they're sure there's a lot of people that can say that for this match right here too because, again, or this series of matches because there's no two out of three falls much anymore like that Rogers-O'Connor uh, match was, but this could be a best of three where by the end – God knows where they take it when it comes to the physicality and the storytelling. But again, don't get too cute with it because not every callback in the world, not every Golden Lovers reference, not every bit of everything is going to be remembered by even the most hardcore of fans. So that's where sometimes people where their art 
you know, get a little too pretentious or sometimes get too cute and then you lose some people. So I don't think that's going to happen here. I just don't hope don't hope it doesn't go that way. Because so much attention has been put on Dave and people saying that they haven't even given you everything yet. This is leading to something else. And it's like, I know that, but like it better, since you're telling me the steps, I know this is pro wrestling. I know how this works. But since you want to tell me these steps are going to be bigger and bigger every time, well, damn it, like the big blockbusters, you better actually step up and give it. Oh, let's make sure it actually happens. That's the only uh, the only thing to the negative that I was thinking about this is, like we know, at some point sooner than later, and no one seems to know the actual date, that Kenny Omega's contract is going to be up with AEW. I don't think he would sign full-time with New Japan. I would hope that New Japan has some assurances that one way or the other, they're going to have access to Kenny Omega uh, to be able to play out this story of Will Ospreay eventually overcoming Kenny Omega. Uh, because, man, would it suck if Kenny Omega signs with WWE and we never get the payoff to this? Yes, this is a great match on its own, obviously. But we never get that payoff of Ospreay, um, you know, getting that win uh, over Omega. You know, like we we never fully got the payoff, at least yet, to uh, to Okada uh, getting his his final win over Omega, uh, or you know we never got for a multitude of different reasons we never got that next level uh, Omega Ibushi match uh, after their uh, you know their their G one match a couple of years ago. Hopefully everything will fall into place for that to be able to happen. Um, but man, like it, it, if it does, it's clear whether it be with Omega or as I mentioned earlier, the situation. Uh, that will be resolved at some point between Osprey and Okada. If everything holds together in terms of guys being in the right promotions, if bodies hold together, as great of a year of twenty uh, as twenty twenty two was for Osprey, you go to twenty twenty three into twenty twenty four. It's clear that New Japan has made the decision that Will Osprey is going to be the guy that the promotion is going to be built around. Uh, in the next couple of years, they are going to great lengths to tell that story. We had the post-match promo from Osprey, which was incredible with him talking, you know, about how much more does he have to sacrifice, just sounding completely exhausted and exasperated, you know, saying he's giving himself one more year to reach that goal. And if he doesn't, it might be time to go, you know, go elsewhere. Uh, you know, it, it's clear that next year, if things go as they're planning them to, that it's either going to be Osprey versus Omega or Osprey versus Okada on January 4th, 2024, with Osprey getting that big win over one of those guys and sort of standing tall at the end of the show. Certainly could be. And I don't know everybody's contract situations and all that stuff, but boy, a healthy, happy Kota Obushi combined with Kenny Omega and the occasional appearances by the Jerichos and the Moxleys and Will Ospreay because they've run the horse that is Jay White into the ground. But, you know, if all those guys are going well and Okada is going well and you can actually, you know, rehab Jay White and get something back in, you know, pump some life back into him, those guys all humming you know, gives you some time to build up all of those guys on the undercard that we were talking about, you know, because obviously it's not going to be the Sonatas and the Godos and the Hiromus of the world. So, 
Well, it know, gives time for the the uh, the Uemuras and the Naritas and yeah. the Uminos and the Sujis of the world uh, to get to that level in a more natural timeline. Yeah, and, and to you know gives them again gives you the ability to do something with them while this undercard is happening because you have your Zack Saber Juniors and your guys there who can hold that down, but. Man, just adding Ibushi healthy back into this mix, it changes everything. Even, you know, just just Omega alone, because an Ibushi that doesn't want to be in New Japan or will not be in New Japan, you know, you know, then we might just get Omega and Osprey. Or I'm not saying that will be it. You know, maybe we get Omega and Okada and Omega and other people as well, too. But just adding Ibushi into the mix makes... Every dynamic, Ibushi Osprey, Ibushi Okada, Ibushi White, Ibushi and Omega together as a team against Jay White and whoever, whatever the combinations are, instantly they're better. Yeah, for sure. And, and to the point that you made on last week's podcast, having an Ibushi on good terms with New Japan makes it far more likely that Kenny Omega will be on good terms with New Japan. And clearly, at least at this moment in time, given what we saw the following night at New Year's Dash, Omega's on good terms with New Japan because there's no way he would have stayed and done that match teaming with Okada uh, in the main event of New Year's Dash if you know it was a scenario where, well, I did my match. I, I want to get out. I want to get back to the U.S. And, and you know we'll see about ever working with New Japan again. That's clearly not the state... Uh, that that relationship is in right now, and we're all better off for that. The main event of this show is we are uh, nearing the two-hour mark of this podcast. Naturally. The main event <laughs> of this show uh, somehow was not Omega versus Osprey. It was Kazuchika Okada against Jay White for the IWGP World Heavyweight title. Jay White wins with a Rainmaker after also hitting the Blade Runner. This was very good. Finishing stretch, as it always is in Okada world title matches, was great. Jay White was very good in this match, as he as he always is. But man, as we talked about going in, and it certainly bore out here, I just did not care about this match, particularly after what we saw before. Jay White is great. Jay White needs to either go away or needs a different presentation because I have seen Everything I could possibly need to see out of Jay White as the leader of the Bullet Club, managed by Gato, uh, cheating and stealing his way through title matches. It is beyond played out. The post-match promo here from Jay White was great, just like it was a couple years ago. I was hoping it was going to lead to something more. At least at this point, all it's leading to is a loser leaves Japan match between Jay White and Hikaleo. So... I don't know. We we have Okada as champion again. It looks like, barring something that may happen on the New Japan versus Noah show, it looks like it's Okada versus Shingo uh, coming up in Osaka in early February, which will be great. And also, I feel like I've seen it before because I have. Uh, it's great that Okada's the champion, but I, I, I'm hoping we get something a little different out of this reign. Uh, I don't know that I need it to last a year. I feel like whoever the next champion is after Okada, it needs to be something different, whether that be um, you know, Will Ospreay winning the world title back. Uh, and yes, while that would be a second reign for him, there are still so many fresh matches to happen. Or it being a shock of someone like Shota Umino, 
um, someone completely out of left field from another promotion. Something about this reign now with Okada needs to feel different because this whole championship scene has felt either it's either been completely on ice like it was for the past six months leading into this match, or it just feels very stale and sane. Yeah, well, you know, the 50th golden year is over with now. Okada did what he had to do. Conquers Jay White. They did nothing to make me want to see it other than give me a basic story that, you know. (laughs) The same basic story that they gave the last time these two guys wrestled for the title. It was the most low-effort booking for a world title match heading into uh, a major show. Uh, from New Japan, I would say arguably in the Gato era. And they still had, if you were to rewind it a few years, a great match. But we've seen so many great matches between the two and so many great interactions and so much great stuff that it was a really good match. And it had a really great you know run to the end, as as they always do, both of those guys, as they always do. But the whole thing was pale going in. And then Omega and Osprey did exactly what everybody thought that they were going to do. And it's I'm not saying that Okada and White didn't try, but there was nothing they could do. There was no if you were going to introduce a new move or something like that, I mean, then you should have built up to it. So like there was no it was just a matter of, okay, how high you know can they get it? How hard can they take it? And they did the best that they could. But there it was. Okada gets the victory, and now it's time to actually let's do something with this title reign. Let's introduce some drama and danger into it. We may have that indirectly with Shingo and with Nakajima. I'd like to think that. You know, Shingo was a name I left out before about Ibushi, you know, a name in that mix. You know, Shingo, again, how do you want to treat this guy? Because he's on that tipping point right now. You know, is he going to be with the Ishii's? And and at that level, is he going to be hanging around with the KOPW and you think you can just pull him out once in a while to let him be great or let him only be great during the G1? Or are you going to do something here? You know, is he going to be... In, in, you know, the spiritual working leader, if he's not already of LIJ, you know what but I we mean? We also, we have to remember that he was, it was never the plan for Shingo Takagi to be a true main eventer in New Japan. But the yeah. pandemic, the Ibushi situation, Evil. Uh, the injuries to, to Will Ospreay, they created the need for a new top guy, sort of workhorse, great wrestler and Shingo very ably filled into that spot, but I don't think he was ever figured into these plans by Gato to be a top, top guy. So now that, you know, they find themselves with, okay, do we, do we double down on what circumstances gave us or are we stubborn? And we say, well, we didn't see him as a guy at this level. So now we're going to, like you said, kind of slot him more at like a Ishii plus uh KOPW level. Yeah. Well, I, again, the, you can do something here and do something very creative with Okada and a title defense against Nakajima that could run through Shingo somehow and something that takes place. I doubt it'll happen, but regardless of what you do, you got to do something with Okada in this title, Ray. Make it exciting, make it good, add some danger and some drama. And with Jay White, we've seen the promo a lot. I like Jay White. 
It's been about four years now since he resigned, right? I I don't know. He could lose that match. What does it mean to to leave Japan? You know, yeah, they were clear to say leave Japan, not leave New Japan, which was odd. And then we also have the report swirling of that WWE for some reason is interested in Hikaleo. So maybe that match was put together for that reason. And it makes complete sense to me of why they would be interested in Hikaleo. Absolutely. hundred percent makes sense to me. Why I would understand if they had an interest, interest in Jay White, I would have understand completely if Jay White was coming due on his contract, which I, I don't believe that he is, but maybe he is, you know, when Dave talked about him being signed for seven years or whatever it was, it was the whole thing with Jay White saying cap on Twitter and, and saying that was, you know, a, a falsehood. So I don't know exactly what his contract status was other than it was, you know, more than two years when he initially signed. So, could he be coming over to work his imply his trade in the States for a little bit of an extended time? Sure, that's possible. But we already but, had that. That's if he's not going but to in, WWE. But in a, he but, just had twenty twenty two where he spent almost the entire year here. The second I don't mean on impact. I don't mean on impact, though. I mean <laughs> in AEW, like, okay, you're gonna do six to eight months, nine months here, and you're going to be working in AEW and you're going to be somehow assimilated into that mix. Like he ain't coming over to not do that or, or to go to WWE. So, you know, if, again, if he's not going to do those things, he's got to be rehabbed well in Japan here. And we've got to see something again. He's too talented, you know, put him on ice for a while, but I don't want to see him back just doing the same old thing lower down on the card with the same old gimmick. He's got to, I think I hopefully for me as a fan watching, he can take it and change it, you know, and make it something a little bit different. Make that switchblade character, something dangerous and something different coming back because we've seen, and it's not his fault. It's the pandemic. It's the booking. It's a lot of things we've seen this great, Mercedes, you know, or Lamborghini, you know, that was, was white and brand new and perfect and everything. Like it's still a Lamborghini, but it's dirty and it's, it's got cracks in it and it needs to go into shop and it needs, you know, fresh tires and fresh paint. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm ready, ready for something different across the board with Jay White. Uh, I think that's pretty safe to say. Uh, we are almost two hours into the show, Mike, so we're not going to be able to do a full review of New Year Dash or a full preview of, uh, of Wrestle Kingdom and Yokohama. We'll have time for, for both of those. Just quickly, though, New Year Dash was a very eventful show in that we saw in almost every match something leading to either you know the next tour or going forward happened. We had uh, Evil Yudro and Dick Togo beat Homa, Narita, and, and Tiger Mask. The story here was that Minoru Suzuki and El Desperado made the save for Ren Narita, and it seems like uh, there will be at some point going forward uh, a, a uh, House of Torture versus Narita, Suzuki, and El Desperado six-man tag title match coming uh, coming out of this. We'll see whether that leads to some sort of group with those three or if it's just a one-time match. But uh, kind of our first hint on this show after... What we saw was ZSJ, ZSJ and TMDK, our first hint of where the uh, the former Suzuki-Goon wrestlers will be slotted. 
Ren Narita is going to turn and join evil. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. You almost made me throw up directly yeah. on my nice new microphone. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that does not happen. Uh, we then had the debut of a new stable in Jesus. New Japan. Um, I guess maybe uh, maybe Takamishinoku Mishinoku is the only guy making money off Bitcoin now or whatever it was. He's got a nice new suit. He brought out Doki, Yoshinobu Kanemaru, and Taichi. And they are just four guys. <laughs> this is the group. I don't know whether I think this is dumb or the best thing I've ever heard. But it is four refugees of Suzuki-Goon here as a group. Decentralized, no leader. Uh, they defeated Will Ospreay, TJP, and Francesco Akira. And it looks like we will be getting Doki and Yoshinobu Kanemaru challenging Catch 2-2 for the junior tag titles. And it looks like the next big match for Will Ospreay is likely going to be against Taichi, which that is a, a very fresh match as far as things we haven't seen uh, of late, particularly with both as heavyweights. So that that could be a very good match maybe coming up for uh, nothing announced yet, but maybe coming up in Osaka. Yeah, love that match on paper, and it'll be very interesting now to see where Taichi fits in in the mix as far as Again, so solid in the mid card. You know how much you know how much he can vacillate up and down the card during the year is going to be interesting. Kanemaru and Doki as a team floating around the junior heavyweight division. I mean, can't really complain about that too much. And you know, I guess if Minoru Suzuki is murder grandpa, then these are just my four dads. <laughs> there you go. Oh, they kind of got stepdad vibes, but either way, it's very creepy uh, in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, uh, Uncle Nobu and friends are sticking very creepy around. In all cases, what am I talking about? Very <laughs> creepy in all cases. <laughs> they're uh, they're sticking around. We then had what we talked about earlier: uh, the match between TMDK and Cass, which led to uh, Kosei Fujita joining TMDK. Also, we had Mikey Nichols pitting Yoshihashi. So it looks like TMDK will be next in line for a shot at the heavyweight tag team titles. Uh, the match after that featured uh, Shota Umino leading a Hontai team, taking on LIJ. Uh, that saw Yo pin uh, Hiromu Takahashi, uh, which will lead to Yo uh, seemingly getting the first junior heavyweight title shot uh, against Hiromu, I would imagine, coming up maybe in Osaka. So something for Yo to do while uh, Leo Rush is out. Uh, we then had uh, Tanahashi, Tamatanga, Hikaleo, and Master Wato uh, against Jay White, Kenta, Ishimori, and Phantasmo. This ended in a disqualification. Jay White snapping, hitting Hikaleo over and over with the chair, and Jay White challenging Hikaleo for that loser leaves Japan match. Yeah, and I, I don't have much to add on on <laughs> any of that, frankly. You know, the, then it was the, the KOPW four-way where Shingo beat Toroyano, Great O'Connor, and Cho. And again, he said he might be bringing his belt with him to face off against Okada. And that ended up taking care of itself in the main event, which saw Okada and Kenny Omega team for the first time on a mystery Vortex show unannounced. Against <laughs> Jeff Cobb and Aaron Hanare, and this was so well done, though. With it uh, was with, with first the shock of Omega coming out, no one expected him to be on the show, 
And that at that point, you know for sure it's going to be Okada because he has not been on the show yet. The second those those uh, coins hit the ground and his music, this crowd, which is not a lot of cheer in a municipal building, they still had the uh, uh, the clap only rules in effect. But this crowd definitely vocally reacted to that total fan service match like nothing going forward with Omega and Okada. I mean, Omega left right after the match because clearly, you know, the story was Okada and Shingo going forward. But such a cool thing to see these two guys team. Uh, you know, it sets up Omega Cobb going forward for the U.S. title. Hanari got to be in that mix a little bit before he got killed uh, <laughs> by uh, by a rainmaker from Okada. And it's just something to think about. You know, either we'll see these two guys reunite sometime going forward and have another big tag match, or this will just be a cool footnote in history that somehow we did end up getting Okada and Omega teaming together one time. Hard for me to believe they're not going to be standing in the ring together and they'll be posing and Okada will hold his hands out and Omega is just going to kick him right in the nads. And, you know, and, 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 and in AEW in particular, I could see that happening. You know, it just because, boy, that would be a great match for, let's say, Forbidden Door in Chicago or wherever yes. that's going to be. I mean, you know, it, it just that as long as Omega's sticking around, he should be in the title picture. You should always have a threat of Okada and Omega facing off or. Again, they can team together, but there's always that arm's length of I want what you got or vice versa or whatever it is. So, again, you know, I, I can't believe that the only time this is going to happen is going to be at the Oda City General Gymnasium in front of <laughs> 2,500 people. But, you know, again, for one night, for what it was, as much as I dislike the concept, I got to be honest of the whole thing. You know, I, I would rather have matches announced and then have, you know, some of the angles kind of fall out of that. But I understand why they do it. And frankly, as long as it continues to be like a de facto huge red reset button where we see new fact, it's like, you know, it's the most blatant like, hey, you know, this is all a show and the new season's looking like this. Like, it's yeah. as close as you're going to get for New Japan to do that. So in some ways, I greatly enjoy the vibe that, that comes out of it. Well, and it was the first time in several years that this really felt like New Year Dash, where you have yeah. those new directions, those new stories, those new angles. And in some ways, maybe more than ever, I mean, every match had either a champion getting pinned to set up a, a, a title match or somebody joining a new faction or some sort of mystery or intrigue. So uh, very enjoyable on that end. Quickly, Mike, Wrestle Kingdom 17 in Yokohama Arena. We, the mystery uh, has been solved. It will be once again New Japan versus Noah pay-per-view, both on the New Japan World and Abema TV side. The most noteworthy thing about this is that last year everyone complained that we only had – uh, multi-man tag matches, no big singles matches here. It's exactly the opposite. As we, yes, we have a few multi-man matches, but we have a best of five LIJ versus Congo. We've got uh, earlier on in the card, El Desperado versus Yohei as well. But uh, the money matches here are the final two. Is it's Shingo Takagi against Katsuhiko Nakajima, where Nakajima said that if he beats Shingo, he will go on to challenge Okada for the IWGP world title. And then the big singles match, the two, maybe the two of the biggest, most unique personalities in all of wrestling in Japan. I saw someone, I can't remember who it was, say, 
It's a battle between the most patient man in wrestling and the most impatient man in wrestling, Tetsuya Naito and Keno. Uh, and then also the, the biggest <laughs> high-profile tag match on this show, Okada and Togi Makabe teaming against Kaito Kiyomiya and Yoshiki Inamura. So we've got IWGP world champion against GHC heavyweight champion on this show. I think it was Striga. I, I'm, I'm almost positive. Uh, thank God for Perolove.com. He had the picture of the fight going on or the confrontation backstage where LIJ is standing up behind their table and podium at their press conference. And then it's Keno and, and Nakajima up front in a line of, of Congo members all lined up. And it's like, it is the most Karen looking thing in the world. It's like my, my kids are here for the signing and it's 6.58, and they said it goes till 7, and my kids deserve your time, and that's exactly what that picture looked like. But that doesn't take away from the fact that I love the fact that they didn't angle while the Tokyo Dome was ongoing. I enjoyed that greatly. I, I hope they, again, they do it sparingly, but next time, have footage, you know, again, have something more in the moment because... I'm excited about this. I like this. I like the matchups that have been named. I like the fact that Shingo was was already challenging Okada by the time we got to this, and now we have Nakajima inserted in, and oh my god. You know, we've been crying about the fact that they need to do something in New Japan. There's plenty of other wrestlers in that country that you can work with. You seem to work at weird times with people. Utilize it more. Now, I don't think they're going to do more than this, you know, at least a whole lot more than this. But, man, I love the thought of it, and I love these matchups. Sonata and Soya I like. Although, again, I'm not sure who exactly I would have wanted to see him go up against, but I like the way the matches are laid out, especially the final two. And I, again, I no complaints out of me whatsoever when it comes to this. It's just we'll see how much of this will play into Noah's show on February 22nd, I believe it is. You know, how much is played into that and if there's anything lingering that may go on after it because I like the thought of it. Again, I, I like the idea of bringing in some blood and mixing it up if that's what you're going to do, as long as the booking is good and as long as the, the stupid politics and the ego stays kind of out of it, which, you know, it's wrestling. We'll see. Yeah, wrestling with two major corporations. Um, and, yeah, we've got this is on the 21st of January, and then the very next night it's at Yokohama Arena Show on the 22nd uh, for Pro Wrestling Noah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, as always, you've got the, the politics of who wins. I mean, I would imagine – I mean, just looking at it, I would imagine we're going to have it's going to be 2-2 heading into the final match. And I, I would be shocked if Naito and Keno doesn't go to a draw, uh, you know, and we end up 2-2-1. and one, Both sides stay strong. We had fun with this, you know, and, and really this is probably it, it appears like at most this will be an annual event, New Japan versus Noah. And you kind of it almost operates in a different universe where you know, a lot of these matches come from what we saw one year prior. There have been no interaction since then, but now we've got the build. 
uh, and it'll take place. So, I, you know, you know me. I'm always, always, always on the side of big interpromotional matches and shows in Japan. To me, it's the most exciting aspect of Japanese wrestling. It always has been. And really hoping that here we'll have uh, cheering crowds. That was the one thing last year's show was missing. And being able to have cheering crowds and New Japan fans and NOAA fans and that sort of uh, vibe and interaction will be uh, very entertaining and very different from what we've seen over the past few years uh, in wrestling in Japan. So with that, Mike. What's the one match that's been booked for the last Muto show? Do you know? uh, Well, it. Yeah, I mean, all we have for that is Muda, Sting, and Darby against somebody. That's uh, or well, yeah. For, are you talking for the January twenty second no, show? No, for February. For the Dome show. The first... Yeah, nothing for the Dome show. Well, that's the one thing that is listed on Pure Love is Nosawa and Mazada oh, yes. against Taiji Ishimori and Gato, and it's like again, boy, if this arc wants to play out then and a little bit after that, I'm not going to complain whatsoever. I really am not. And if this, look, this thing with Noah doesn't work, you've established a second night that if it's not Noah, it can be somebody else. It can be stardom. It can be AEW. You can make it anything that you wanted it to be. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I guess there's that. So I'm going to shut up now because I talked way too much, and I apologize for that. (laughs) it's time to shut it down. This has been a great show. It's been a long show. It's not quite been a Russell kingdom length show, but I don't know. Give us another year or two and we might get there, but yeah, we should shut it down. If you want to hear other things that I do wrestling at random.com or search wrestling at random, wherever you get your podcast, new episodes continue to go up uh, of that show this week for some godforsaken reason. The randomizer chose for us to, Listen to and review or to watch and review two episodes of WWF Championship Wrestling from 1983. Woof. No. You will hear us talk all about that for better or worse uh, coming tomorrow, Sunday at six o'clock p.m. Is there Don Cranoodle discussion? No, he shockingly is not on this show, but there's. Multiple matches of Ivan Koloff, multiple matches, uh, thankfully, of Rocky Johnson. He was awesome on those shows. But, yeah, it is uh, is a rough watch, but it made for a good podcast. I think everyone will get to hear that. And then on our Patreon, where you can support the show and get even more new content at patreon.com slash wrestling at random. The show that just went up this week is a review of an episode of SAPW TV South Atlantic Professional Wrestling from December 1990 uh, featuring U.S. male Curtis Thompson before he became Firebreaker Chip. There is Chris Chavis before he became Tatanka. And thankfully, saving the show, one of my all-time favorites and a guy, Jeremy Deemer, my longtime close personal friend who co-hosts the show with me, a guy who he's really come around to as we've done this podcast, Robert Fuller is all over this show, the future Colonel Robert Parker. So you can check all that out. Like I said, wrestlingatrandom.com for the free shows or wherever you get your podcasts. And then patreon.com slash wrestlingatrandom to get those bonus shows. And also... I will at some point next week have a write-up on Wrestle Kingdom, New Japan, uh, everything else. Uh, as infrequent as it's been, I'll have something going up next week at Three Count Fall, adamsummers.subsec.com. Uh, so check that out, and uh, and yeah, there'll be something going up there soon. The original Shoulders Torelli in South Atlantic Pro Wrestling. Yes! 
who I did not know. If you listen to that <laughs> podcast, you will hear in real time me fall over shocked that the Vince Torelli in South in South Atlantic Pro Wrestling was in fact a young Ken Shamrock. Blew yes. my mind. Yes. Home Team Sports, I believe, aired that one, and thank Nelson Royal, I guess, for that. I can't, I can't recall who gets the the, the credit for that show, but uh, yeah, wow, I got to listen to that just for for that reason. But I too have a Patreon. If you've ever liked any of my work, no matter where it is, if you'd like to support me, you can do throw do so through Mid Atlantic uh, Pods Patreon, patreon.com slash Mid Atlantic Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at SemperVV and at Mid Atlantic Pod. Uh, the throwback show, I've been adding a lot to that Patreon, I've been trying to add to it uh, almost every single day. Different things. $5 gets you in the door. Working on a long forum right now of Wahoo McDaniel and his. Uh, he'll turn in 1984, where he sets out on his mission to make the American Indian a first-class citizen by teaming with one of the lowest-down people he could have teamed with at the time, Tully Blanchard. And it's a, a great journey that I'm going to take you on there. So $5 gets you in the door. See a lot of great wrestling uh, history, a lot of videos, a lot of different things there. So support that. Also, the wrestling news, which unlike this show, is brief and every single day, uh, Sunday to Saturday. We do not do not take a day off. All of the wrestling news that you need to know or get caught up on, usually it's released by about 9 o'clock at the latest uh, a.m. Eastern time. Uh, Sunday, it's a little bit later than that, but between 7 and maybe 17 minutes every day, everything you need to know from around the world of wrestling like the Vince McMahon story, which I, I talk about at length on the Saturday, January 7th edition. So you can check that out at Wrestling News AV on Twitter and on Facebook, or go to the WrestlingNews.com. Uh, if you got the gimmick, tell your gimmick to uh, set an alarm and alert for it and play it every day. So, uh, yeah, there's that, as well as Wrestling Observer Live as well, too, which I think everybody knows about at this point. Don't sound so excited about that. Well, Mike. I mean, I mean, I look and I didn't hype <laughs> up the Black Wrestling podcast. Bulls in the China shop myself and Vin Forte. Hopefully, doing that very soon. Pay the ten, become a Patreon member over there. But uh, if you can, uh, let Adam and I be your your first Patreon stops before them. They would understand me saying that. And, and yes, I would absolutely agree. Though support that podcast as well. Thank you for supporting this podcast. This. I don't know if this is the longest show we've ever done. It's definitely the longest non-G1 show that we've ever done. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be we'll be back next week with you now there's a ton more to talk about. Obviously, uh got Noah with their two show one day shuffle tag tournament with uh Pro Wrestling Noah and Congo teams being shuffled around. Uh, the Stardom uh Triangle Derby uh, tournament in full swing, including a show this weekend that not only has tournament matches, but has Azumi versus Starlight Kid. Uh, quick notes, uh, Mercedes Monet, it's Azumi, not AZM. Uh, but uh, Azumi versus Starlight Kid for the uh, the uh, high-speed title. Uh, also, Saya Kamatani versus Ami Sore. So we'll talk about that next week, and I'm sure a lot more. But just not for this week, because we got to go. Bye-bye. <laughs>